That's it. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? Today on the show, we have Michael Ventura, who's a really incredible human. He's the founder of Subrosa, which is a strategy and design shop uh, in New York City that has been in business since basically around the time that Flash websites were all the rage. And they've done incredible work for Johnson & Johnson, Ted, Adobe, you name it. And the thing that we're here to talk about today, Michael's big idea is exactly what has allowed his company to thrive. And it's the idea that uh, empathy is one of the most powerful tools for modern leadership. And Michael just wrote a book called Applied Empathy. And on this episode, we go so deep on the topic of empathy, everything from understanding the three different types of empathy that we can deploy going through the seven archetypes of empathy, so different kind of modes of connecting with people, empathizing with them, hearing them. And all these things are incredibly powerful for those who are in a position of leadership, who need to be able to relate to the people around them, whether they are leading, serving, selling, does not matter. Um, so you're going to find a lot of value in that. But outside of that, Michael is just a really dynamic uh, multifaceted human being. So outside of that, he started a, a shop in his West Village office that curated little trinkets and treasures from all around the world. He's versed in all sorts of different spiritual healing modalities and, you know, spends, I think, like 15, 20 hours a week offering healings in the downstairs kind of studio of his office. So he's a really worldly human. He's super bright. Uh, and this is a really fascinating, enlightening conversation that I know you're going to enjoy. So without further ado, here is Michael Ventura. Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? We are coming in hot from Sub Rosa offices in uh, the beautiful West Village. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, so it's a pleasure to be back here. Uh, Michael is a, a man who I've admired, who has a reputation that kind of precedes him in this extended kind of entrepreneurial community in New York. And that's not only because you have created a really incredible business that has won all sorts of accolades in the world of uh, strategy, design, um, kind of interactive development, but uh, because you, you really occur for me as a man of multiple pursuits and someone who's really given yourself to a bunch of different things that really speak to you. And um, so what I, I'd love to start with before we get into your big idea is how do you answer the question, what do you do and how did you get there? <laughs> well, first, thank you, because it's very kind of you to say those things. Um, when I get asked that question, I often say that I am really only good at one thing, which is helping discover what it is that stands in the way of you getting where you want to go and helping offer a solution or a support system to help you get past it. Hmm. And that's true at a corporate level when we work with large organizations. That's true interpersonally here at Subrosa. That's true in my private practice where I do alternative medicine and see one-on-one -on -one patients. Um, frankly, it was even true for the past four years when my wife and I had run a retail store in this West Village space because uh, it was about helping people move and get into a new state of life or like they just had a kid and they're trying to build a new apartment or a new home. And uh, all of those, I think if you, if the 
helicopter goes up high enough and looks down at all those disparate jobs, it's the same job. It's helping diagnose roadblocks, challenges, issues, and then offering solutions or support to get you around them or over them or through them. Totally. And so did you kind of fall into this position where you identified this skill of yours, I mean, even more than a skill, but you, you seem so called to it. It's something that it feels like you just naturally do and it's extended into all these businesses. So was there something that happened where you realized that this is something that you enjoyed, that you were good at in your life? Like when did the light bulb come off that this was kind of a calling for you? It was an unpleasant experience. Uh, I think that the way it happened for me was that in my twenties, I started my first business. We were like a digital studio building flash websites in the early two thousands when that (laughs) mattered. And, um, the business grew really quickly. I had no real investors or, um, support system around me to help manage that stress. And I was doing everything within the business. I was running business development. I was doing strategy. I was doing creative. I was managing clients. I was basically doing uh, the job of about three or four different people, as most entrepreneurs do. But I didn't have any way to manage that stress. And one day I was changing the water cooler and just saw white. And when I opened my eyes, I had herniated three discs in my back. I could barely walk. I was taken to the hospital. They told me I had to have crazy surgery. That led me down this whole alternative medicine path because I refused the surgery. And that led me into this you know, tangled web of different modalities and conversations with different teachers. And amidst all of that, I had this teacher who was a spiritual uh, man who didn't really sort of subscribe to any one tradition, but was was a student of many. And as I was telling him about my life and how stressed out I was and how plagued I was by all of this complexity, he just offered that analogy of the, or the, the exercise of that helicopter. And he said, if you zoom all the way up, what does it look like? And I had never gotten out of the weeds enough to look up and to go up and to look down from above and see it all objectively. And in doing that very simple, very benign exercise, it shifted everything for me. And I realized I'm not doing a million things. I'm doing one thing a couple different ways. And then that's made everything a lot more manageable. And so how did that experience then parlay into how you were running the business? So I started to realize that a, I didn't need to do everything that there were other people who you could empower to do stuff. Yeah. Um, that the things that I really did enjoy doing and that did that I did well, I would stick with doing, and I would continue to hone and refine those aspects of my management style or my creativity or my whatever it was. Um, you know, at this point now, I've been running businesses for 18 years, and the role I play is very narrow and broad in some ways in that uh, I, I really think my, my primary job at Sabrosa is to be mortar, not to be brick mm-hmm. and to permeate the cracks and to hold things together. And like, but, but I'm not the bricks that will build this thing. I just, I just need to be flexible enough to kind of get into the cracks and hold together what can't hold itself. Well, like the person who can, the person who can come above it mm-hmm. ultimately, right? Yeah. And rise above and look at it 
kind of from out of the weeds right? and have that perspective. I want to call that out one more time because I think it's so powerful. You might even have perspective on this from the healing world, but when you talked about that helicopter kind of exercise, Mm -hmm. and for so many people who find themselves being stressed out, overwhelmed, uh, without clarity about what to do next or where to put their time, how do they recognize that and what would you advise people to do to make that step of coming above Mm -hmm. and i just had like a a self-hypno or a hypnosis class where someone did that for me miraculously of like i was feeling stressed and she actually helped me visualize coming out of my body and looking at Mm. myself experiencing it which was really powerful that perspective shift but how do you get people to take that first step where they can remove themselves from this state that's not really serving themselves their business So I think there's two thoughts that come to mind on that. One is independently, if you're having an internal dialogue, talking to yourself, you're probably not working from intuition. You're probably having a cerebral conversation with Mm. different personalities. So maybe get quiet first, right? And really listen to the non-debated intuition's voice and Mm. see what that's saying. Uh, That's not always easy, though, because we have a lot of eyes and a lot of personalities that want to drive the bus. Right. And so sometimes it's hard to know which one is the, is the intuitive one is the, is the quote unquote right one, if there is one. Um, and so one way you can do that with others is to just ask is to say to a colleague or your partner, what do you rely on me for? Hmm. What am I good at? What do you think I do well? Because, we are often our own worst critics and i've seen in workshops and and projects that we do with clients when we run through some of the the exercises we have people will self-diagnose we'll give them a bunch of different archetypes we'll say pick the one you think is your greatest strength and they'll pick it Mm. and then we'll do some exercises with that strength and they'll struggle through it and then at the end they'll do the same with weaknesses and they'll fly through it and afterwards we'll ask them why do you think that was And what they realize is we over-index on our strengths and we short-sell what we believe are weaknesses but are probably both closer to the middle. Hmm. And so that exercise is sometimes really helpful for people to realize like, there's, there's more to me than I give myself credit for. Yeah, and how to come out of their own experience, right? Yeah. And which I think is a, a beautiful segue likely into what your big idea is. And so in your own words, on what's a big idea, you know, we've had everyone from entrepreneurs to academics to musicians to really distill a singular piece of idea, a singular piece of information, an idea that they wish more people could integrate into their lives. Mm-hmm. And so for you and everything you're doing, what would be that idea that you wish more people could make a part of their lives? That empathy is a accessible and ubiquitous skill that can be cultivated and developed that will improve relationships, problem solving, self-development, and a whole litany of other things. To me, that the, the cultivating the, the, the empathy muscle is a key to unlocking some of our greatest potential. And let's start by just defining empathy. Yep. So it'll be a little bit of a long answer because I think it's Please. important. Yeah. You ask 100 people, they will tell you 100 different answers of empathy. I've seen it firsthand. <laughs> um, some people think it's about being nice or sympathetic or compassionate. Those are side effects of empathy, but those are not empathy in and of itself. And so there are three main types of empathy. There's affective empathy with an A. And affective empathy is like golden rule empathy. So if I perceive that you're sad, 
I would then look inward toward myself and say, when I'm sad, I want people to treat me this way. And so then I treat you that way. Mm. And there's a lot of bias in that behavior because what if when I'm sad, I want to be consoled. And when you're sad, you want to be left alone. Totally. Right. So inherent in that is I've put too much of me into that. Right. So that's the like golden rule behavior. Um, the se- the second is somatic empathy. Somatic empathy is when you physically feel the emotions or the physicality of someone else. So like when a spouse is having sympathy pains for their partner when they're pregnant or when nurses have uh, uh, empathy fatigue for their patients, right? And super hard to train, doesn't have a lot of place in our daily round and probably does more harm than good for most people. The third is cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy is what we're talking about here. It's about perspective taking, mm-hmm. right? It's about getting into your shoes. It's, it's the platinum rule, not the gold rule. Mm. Do unto you as you would do unto you, right? And, and actually help you work from where you want to be served best. And so that to us is where it starts. And then we've built a can, whole... Can, before, can ahead, you just, just reiterate the platinum rule again? Because I feel that that's such a helpful frame for people to shift yes. their understanding of empathy. So what is the platinum rule? Do unto others as they would do unto themselves. Yeah, as opposed to the affective. It's like, here's how I want to be treated when I'm sad. Right. And so I'm going to go and console this person. It is, what do you need right now? Exactly. And you just did it because you can't do it without inquiry. Hmm. You can't guess. If you're guessing, you're doing the work. And you might be wrong. You might think you know what that person needs, but have you asked them? You might have done this for them six weeks ago, and six weeks ago, that was what they needed, but maybe they're a different person now. And maybe what worked six weeks ago will not work again. And so inquiry, what do you need? How can I help? How do you feel? Is there something I can do? All of those are ways in to deeper understanding. I think one of the things that just kind of became clear for me, I got goosebumps, is just again, is the idea of certainly we can feel empathy, but to really experience empathy in its most productive or kind of uh, productive format, there has to be a dialogue. Yes. Yeah. Like you yes. can, you can experience empathy, but that to practice empathy, there has to be a dialogue present. That's and, right. An understanding. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, on the spectrum of empathy, right. There are, there are some people whose dialogue does not require words, Right. Like there's a there's mm. a, a, a gentleman who's in a, a similar circle to both of us in, in New York, David Savage, who mm. you, I'm sure you've come sure, across. Yeah. David's a, David's an empath. David doesn't need to ask because David's a somatic empath. He feels yeah. right. But most people don't have what David has. Most people can't open their arms and close their eyes and feel the person across from them so genuinely that they know what's up. Right. And so for for most of us, we've got to ask questions yeah. and we've got to be curious. We've got to be willing to be taught from the person across from us. And we have to be willing to accept that what they want for them may not be something we agree with. But if it's what they're asking for and it's not harmful to them, then we should consider it the right option. Beautiful. And so where do we go from there? So we ended on the platinum. So, yeah, so that's cognitive empathy. And where we ladder that up is to what we call applied empathy, because I could do all that work. Everything we just said, ask great questions, get deeper understanding, really get what you want and then have no application, Hmm. have no doing, right? Empathy's magic is only made true by application, by actually doing the work. And so applied empathy is a series of tools and approaches and methodologies because we're strategists and we love that shit. And so we just made a bunch of stuff that helped us 
frame up and contain and train and embody these different ways of using empathy. Because if we're doing that the right way, we're going to be able to not just understand, but help manifest the outcomes that we're desirous of. And where does this start? Would you say, or where would you like to take it? Also, before you even move on even further, you know what I just realized? Is that if you look at the three types of empathy, the first one is, say the word again with the Effective. A, effective, then it's somatic, and then conscious? Cognitive. So, cognitive. Is that the acronym would be ASK, which is we're moving. <laughs> look at that. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> right? It's like if yeah, we're moving towards. Yeah, it's the, 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 the shibboleth in there is, is just ask questions. Yeah, totally. I love that. Well done. Right. Um, I'm stealing that one. Uh, <laughs> it's all so, yours. So, um, so would, you, would you take this now in terms of the application that you've really focused on? Was it very much kind of like into the corporate and where you started professionally in terms of how you were using this to solve problems for businesses in terms of what they're thinking about for the company and strategically what they needed to do to actually kind of grow and solve mm-hmm. problems or was it on the interpersonal and kind of like the more human and how we relate to people side? So it started for us as an internal exercise at Sub Rosa yeah. to understand our secret sauce basically. Like is there a thing we've unconsciously been doing that we could make conscious. And so we went back over our case history of about a decade and looked at our best work and looked at our, sh- our, 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 our worst work. And across both of them, we kept seeing this theme emerge. When we practiced empathy, when we performed inquiry, when we acted upon that insight, our work was great. And when we didn't, our work failed. And so we said, let's not go run off and sell this to clients. Let's not go chest beat and say like, we figured it out. It's been three weeks and now we're geniuses. Um, what we did instead was we went to academia and we said, we want to learn how to teach this. Mm. And we want to learn how to do 12 weeks, deep education in, in, in a rigorous and academic environment. And can we actually create a curriculum? Mm. Can we create a methodology? Can we create toolkits? And so we went to Princeton. And we team taught it, uh, four of us here for three semesters. We refined it. We learned how to do it well. We then brought it to the United States Military Academy at West Point. And who are you teaching? Are you teaching to undergrads? You're to undergrads. Undergrads. Kind of, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then at West Point, we were teaching cadets and, and faculty. Uh, we had a couple faculty seminars where we were actually working across the table from three-star, two-star, one-star generals who have come up in the military who believe, and this, this shows how much bias can color your perception. I walked onto that campus thinking this is going to be one of the hardest rooms I've ever been in to talk about empathy. Hmm. And where was that coming from? Preconceived notions of what a military personality would be like. Sure. And, you know, and, and all of my, uh, foreign policy opinions yeah. relative to, you know, the way, <laughs> sure. the, 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 the way, um, and this, this was actually, uh, right at the first couple months of the Trump administration. Yeah. So, um, it was, it was early days and it was kind of tenuous. And I walked into the room and the superintendent of the school was there and I had a couple moments alone with him and he's a three-star general. And I, I said, I just got to ask you, like, why am I here? Why did you guys invite us to come do this? And he said, well, you might be surprised to know this, but most of us think that one of the most critical leadership skills any leader can have is empathy. That doesn't mean that we are going to, you know, pause to have inquiry when our lives are on the line or, uh, you know, there's gunfire coming at us, but put it, put yourselves in the shoes of a cadet. This, this cadet's going to graduate at 21 years old. They're going to be deployed within six months. They're going to have 40 people in their command. Remember what you were like at 21. Mm. 
you couldn't have one person in command probably, right? That was me speaking. Like I said, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how to even take care of myself. Sure. And he said, and they're going to come from all different walks of life. Some are going to have a four year degree. Some are going to have a GED. Some are going to have come from good neighborhoods. Some are going to have come from not so good neighborhoods. And as a 21 year old cadet, who's now a ranking officer, how are you going to understand all of them in a way that motivates them, that keeps them safe, that does, and I just like, and you know, from there on I was in, I was like, okay, this is important and you guys see the matrix on this, so let's do it. So what Princeton, West Point, came out of both of those and we said, okay, now we know enough that we can go take it to corporate clients, that we can sell it. And what we were going in and selling was not hey, let us preach empathy. It was still, hey, let us help solve a problem. Going back to what I was saying, I think I, I'm wired to do. But the problems were very diverse. It was, we have an internal culture issue that we're trying to overcome. We have a diversity and inclusion challenge. Uh, we have an innovation pipeline that's stagnant. We have a product market fit that we haven't cracked. We have consumers we don't understand well enough. The questions are endless. But empathy kept coming back to being the, the skeleton key for that lock. And in practicing that and in seeing how those methodologies played out in there, we realized we weren't just helping companies, we were helping the people in the companies. Can I, can I invite you to give one example that shines out for you of maybe even speaking to a story that highlights the process at work and how it unlocks something in a company? And then what I'd love to really move into is for people, a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to the show, um, what are the actual steps to basically bring this into their own business? And so is there a story that comes to mind for you when you talked about a lot of those different mm -hmm. kind of use cases, what comes to mind is kind of one of the shining examples where this was deployed and, and ultimately kind of got you results? Yeah. So, uh, one that I, I love to talk about is the, a piece of work we did for general electric a few years ago. It was, uh, the brief was pretty short and sweet and tight, but also really daunting at the same time. It was, we are third in market share in medical imaging. So Philips and Siemens sell more X-ray and CAT scan and MRI machines than us. We want to be first. You can't change our core product. So you can't change the machines, but we need to really accelerate our market share growth. Help us figure out how to do it. We're going to have you focus on the mammography business because it's a growth area for us and it's microcosmic. And if we do that well, we'll build best practices that can scale to all the other imaging devices. Okay. Sounds like a really cool brief. Sounds super daunting. You've got five months off you go. And so what we did was built a living laboratory at retail level in Soho in New York city. And we said, we're not going to do this in like focus groups with one way mirror. And we're not going to like interview people in hospitals. We're going to go where people live and we're going to have real human to human conversations with them. And we invited in women doctors and patients and cancer survivors. We invited in multi-generational families where we could talk to grandmothers and mothers and daughters. We invited in church groups and other religious groups to talk about how uh, certain religious points of view play a role in something as intimate and, uh, and uncomfortable as a breast exam. Mm. You know, we brought in the design team from Victoria's Secret to talk about how they think about women's bodies. We brought in the retail team from Kiehl's to talk about how do they design an environment, a retail environment that feels somehow clinical, but also still convivial and like an interest. And so we had all of these rich conversations. And in that process, we learned so much. But the things that stood out the most were the conversations we had with just everyday folks who go through a breast exam experience. And they pointed out a couple key things. The second I make the appointment, I'm thinking about an appointment to find out if I have cancer. 
the way it's phrased with a doctor, the way it's lodged in my head is this is an appointment to find out if I have cancer. It's not body health. It's not maintenance. It's not like getting a physical, which has just as high a likelihood of finding something in a physical when you get your labs that they might say, Hey, there's not something so great here. We need to go a little further. Um, but this is it. This is an, an express test that is only for one thing to tell you if you have cancer and if you have cancer, then you're on that journey. And so, we started to pick apart all of those pain points. And what we soon realized was if we can't change the machine, maybe we can change the patient experience and maybe the patient experience is where the unlock is. And so we started to explore that deeper and we found out all these fascinating things that, you know, like the, the product world and the, and the services world have these ingrained behaviors that no one ever asks questions about. So one of the things every woman told us, 87% of the women we surveyed told us the number one reason they don't get screened on a 12 month basis is the memory of pain. That, that, that pressure. So for those of you that have not had one, the, a panel from the top and the bottom squeezes down on breast tissue and light travels from the top to the bottom and scans for cancerous cells. It's uncomfortable. We can't change that because they told us we can't change the machine. 87% of the women say that's the number one reason they don't get screened on a 12 month basis. The second reason, 84%, something like that, that uh, women cited was that the rooms are freezing cold. Now that seems like a changeable thing. Mm. So we go back to G and said, why are the rooms so cold? On average, 64 degrees Fahrenheit. Jeez. Yeah, cold room. And you're in that paper gown and you're sure. going through an uncomfortable procedure and yeah. the machine's cold, all this other stuff. And they said, well, that's the optimal temperature for the lifespan of the machine. Mm. And we all raised our eyebrows and we said, but what about the patient? And they were like, well, that's not our job. We're engineers. We're here to optimize our machine. So it's not the engineer's fault, sure. but it is the fault of the process that there was no human factors person. There was no person who said, but what about the patient? And so we said, what would happen if we increased the temperature by 10 degrees? And they said, the test will be fine. It's just not optimal. And so we said, okay, well then we're going to increase the temperature by 10 degrees. And so we went to Memorial Sloan Kettering coming around to the punchline of all of this. And we increased the temperature by 10 degrees. We gave them a better gown that made them feel a little more comfortable. Sure. We retrained the staff to have a different uh, lexicon when it came to appointment making and all of that. We tightened the feedback time from screen to results so that you actually didn't have you know three days of waiting for the phone to ring to find out the news. We did all of this stuff around the machine. We decreased the rate of pain by 50% and we increased the effectiveness of the test by 12% by not changing the machine, but changing the experience around the machine. Yeah. And so GE, going back to the brief, needed to make money and needed to sell more machines. And so the way we built a plan for them was to not just sell machines, but to sell services to hospitals. And you've got a, you've got a child and you know that when you were thinking about how you wanted to have your child, you can run the spectrum from home birth to, you know, birthing rooms at hospitals to doulas to this, to that. And everyone kind of optimizes your, your birth experience for what you want. Sure. Now at hospitals throughout the country, if they are GE led hospitals, you have a GE imaging center that takes all of these best practices. And so GE sells services to hospitals on top of the product wow. to actually redesign the patient experience to be optimized. So kids MRI machines look like pirate ships yeah. and they can climb into those and it's less scary than they're going into some thing that, that looks intimidating or the, the women's exams have all the points that we've just discussed. So it shifted their entire business and approach to healthcare by putting the patient first. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I'm so fascinated by is because you make it sound 
simple. Like so obvious, right? On the surface. But it, I really sense that there is a deep methodology behind this. And because, you know, you talk about bringing people into a space and asking them questions to understand their experience. And something like a focus group has been around, you know, since right. what, like the 30s, 40s or something like that, probably. I would imagine, yeah. And so when you look at your approach to asking those questions, I guess that that's what I'm really, the applied empathy aspect here, mm-hmm. is what is the process to asking the right questions, to creating the right environment where people can be honest? Like what is, for people that are interested in doing this for their own work, of like, yep. if, you're, if you're listening to this, I would even potentially just say like, take a moment to think about a struggle internally for the business of like something where you've identified a block, whether that is product market fit, whether that is your culture, whether that is growth and just hold on to it for a moment. So when you listen to this, you can literally take these steps Mm -hmm. and ask yourself some questions when we're done. So yeah, one of the, one of the ways in for us is we've developed these seven archetypes and each archetype has a behavior. And so this isn't like a Myers-Briggs or a strengths finder where we're telling, where, where we're typing you and saying mm-hmm. like, you're a this and I'm a that. This is seven ways of eliciting understanding, right? So some people are really good. You just had two of them in your, in your setup to this. You said, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's about asking the right questions, right? And, and that is the inquirer archetype, right? It's someone who really knows how to ask great questions and, and, and enjoys the act of that. So ask yourself, are you asking the right questions? Are you thinking about the questions that are going to unlock the right information? The sort of sister to that is the confidant. Are you a good listener? Do you hear everything people are saying or are you listening, but planning what you want to say next, right? Are you actually getting into the act of listening and signaling to them that what they say matters? Because once they feel that you may not know that verbally, but you may sense it and they're going to say more. They're going to open up in a different way. The confidant and the inquirer sort of live side by side. There's other ones as well though. Like the, the, the convener thinks about set and setting right? What's the environment we're doing this in? If you're a manager of people, you know that some meetings need to happen in a conference room and some meetings need to happen on a walk with a cup of coffee in your hand, Mm. right? Because there are certain people or certain types of conversations that require a different touch in order to make them work well, right? Some people have that naturally. Some people need to learn that on the job, right? And so there are, there are seven, I won't go through all of them, but like the, the idea with it is play with all of them and really get under the hood of them a bit more because what you might find is that you're, you're shortchanging some of them. Like I'll give you one that I'm terrible at. It's called the alchemist. The alchemist is an experimenter. I am. I find that surprising. I, I you, see, here's the thing. I, I, I am a very planful person. Yeah. Prototyping scares the crap out of me because prototyping is unprecious and requires failure to understand, right? The way and the way a alchemist gains empathy, gains understanding for something, be that a product or an audience or what have you, is by testing, breaking, learning, observing, recovering, and doing it again and again and again and again and again and again. I hate that. Mm-hmm. I wanted I want to do it once really thoughtfully and try to get it right. Yeah. And if I get it wrong, maybe I have to do it another time or another time, but I don't want to do it a hundred times, right? But for some people, that's the way they learn. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about that for yourself and understanding what of these archetypes are natural to me and where are my gaps? Mm. And then thinking about that for your team, maybe you've got a team who's got a gap, right? Like we were with a leadership team recently. They all five of them identified strongest strength was inquirer. They all were great question askers. 
and this is independent. They're not like vocalizing this in the room. So everyone has a piece of paper. They're writing them down. They all also, which is weird that they had five for five on both sides, but they did all had confidant as their weakest. So they were all great question askers, but nobody was listening. And we said, guys, like we just did a year's worth of therapy in 30 minutes for you. Like the, here's the problem. No one cares what anyone's saying. You all just care about your own questions and your own time to hold the microphone. Sure. And that unlocked a whole shift in the way they worked with each other. And then we went into a whole set of training on active listening and all the things that should follow that. I'm lo- can, you, can you give us the other archetypes as yeah, well? Sure. Yeah, sure. So um, we've hit on alchemist, which is the experimenter, inquirer, which is the question asker, confidant, which is a great listener, convener, convener which is host, holds space, knows how to set and setting is important. Um, the uh, cultivator is a big picture person. They see the they see the goals and the point on the horizon, and they can use that as a motivator and as a and as a input to cultivating understanding in the present. Hmm. The sage is about presence. It's about signaling connection and a mindful presence. You're not on your phone. You're not thinking about where you're going next. You really just are, are, are holding space in the moment with someone. And the seeker is daring. They're confident. They're unafraid. They know how to pivot. It's a very entrepreneurial mindset, very growth mindset oriented person. They know what it feels like to come up to the edge of a threshold. They know what it comes like, feels like to come up to the edge of sort of crossing over into something else. They know how to motivate others to do that. Uh, and they know how to get that out of themselves. Right? So th- those seven all kind of, I would imagine as I went through those, there are some that you said to yourself like, oh yeah, that's me. I do that all the time. And there's probably a couple that you're like, oh, that's kind of a blind spot. Yeah. It's true for everybody. What we want is not for someone to get great at one, but to get deft with all seven Hmm. so that in the right moment, you know, Hey, I'm being a little opaque right now. I need to be, I need to be a better listener. I need to, I need to really like drill into this conversation a bit more because I'm, 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 too much in my own head. Or I know this is an important meeting for Bill and we've got to get outside the building and like go have a walk because he does better when we're like outside breathing fresh air and moving our bodies. So like, let's go do that. You know, those are the dialogues and the checks with yourself that you need in order to know what to call on at what time. Yeah. I just, and I love the implementation of archetypes again, of just like the, the solidness of them to be able to evaluate your actions in real time, right? Of like, if you're expressing something or just relating to someone in a specific way to be able to associate that with one of these kind of like set Mm -hmm. identities of like relating to people. And we, you know, when we look at work that we're doing, we will ask ourselves on many occasions, you know, are we missing something here? Is there an archetype that's not being represented? Have we not thought enough about the space that this is all going to occur or something like that? And that, that helps open a whole path of inquiry that we might be missing. And so one of the things that I was most excited to ask you today is why people don't practice empathy. Hmm. And not only why don't we practice it, but what in whether it's our culture in the way that we are raised that leads to, it feels like we are in a time and like I oftentimes cite like the recent Gallup poll that showed that uh, in terms of political polarity, from 40 years ago, it's mm-hmm. we're twice as polarized that we were. And so it's like, you know, political extremeness is, is literally taking hold of our country and feels more and more difficult to have a, a nuanced discourse, you know, in the digital domain. And so, um, where, what happens that makes us incapable or averse to practicing empathy? I love that question. I, I think the, the, the first answer is that it's hard. People don't default to the hard choice first. And so, well, why is it hard? 
it's hard because we are not raised in this country to deal with conflict and complexity in a productive manner. And so like take religion and politics. Most people are raised. Those are things you don't talk about at, mm. uh, at a cocktail party. Mm. Right. And so as a result, we've raised a whole generation of people who don't know how to have productive, nonviolent conversations about differing points of view. You go to other parts of the developed world. Those are very approachable conversations and mm. debate is welcome. And it adds a richness to the life experience to be able to see other people's points of view. But we, particularly as Americans, live in these echo chambers that we've created for ourselves in 24 hour news cycles in, you know, like you can, you could, if you're a conservative thinker, you can live in the echo chamber of Fox news and Breitbart and all of the other things that are relevant to you. And believe that that is the only way that the world operates or should operate right and so we've created these fissures these these chasms that we find too difficult to cross because the gap is too wide now and because our differences are too insurmountable and i'm not saying empathy is the salve for that i'm not saying that it will solve everybody's problem but it is a step in the right direction. It is a bridge where there was a chasm. It is an opportunity to step across the other side and to say, help me see it from your point of view. I might not agree with you, but help me see it. Because if I understand the inputs to your decision-making and what led you to this point and, you, and all of the factors that got you here, and then you understand mine, there's a higher likelihood we will find middle. Yeah, one of, one of the most powerful frames that I've ever been gifted was uh, by a woman who we've had on the podcast. Um, do you know Lauren Zander, the coach? No. No, so she, she actually gave me this for my relationship. And, and it's applicable, I think, to political discourse, to uh, workplace issues, but she introduced it to us in a, in a romantic context, so with my partner. And what she would say is anytime we were in a disagreement, she was like, if you're ready to work through this, to talk about what you want to do moving forward, that the foundation has to be acknowledging that your partner is different than you you've chosen them because you love them but until both parties can acknowledge the other person's perspective in their words you're not ready to have a conversation you're still mad or you're still emotional and that's okay that's very right. human to have that but if you really want to have a conversation to like find middle ground to talk about what we're doing moving forward the foundation is here's what i'm hearing you say is that right mm -hmm. you know and that until both of us we're in that place where we could do that where it's going to be impossible for us to really move forward because we, we ultimately didn't feel seen or heard. Yes. And so, you know, That's I think a great again, piece of advice. Yeah. And I think that it, and it's been literally two years in a relationship was, was an absolute lifesaver. So mm -hmm. for anyone who's early in a relationship or late in a relationship, um, it's a really powerful one that I would highly recommend introducing in peace times and not in the middle <laughs> of, of an argument for sure. But, um, That's funny. you know, it's really fascinating. And, and what are your thoughts about like the idea of, of how to kind of upend or release ourselves from our own biases. And like one of the things I think is so powerful about um, you, you occur for me as a guy who's like so deep in his own work and to 
open up to someone else's perspective about the world or how you're showing up for them, you know, it, it can then come back to you and you have to challenge yourself and your own beliefs about who you are and how you're showing up in the world. And so could you just speak a little more to that about how empathy does that? Yeah, I think one of the things clinically speaking, a lot of psychologists wouldn't say is that one can have whole empathy for themselves. Right? It's very hard to be a, a complete observer of your own existence. Right, There's going to be biases. There's sure. going to be blind spots. I agree with that. However, it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Mm. It doesn't mean it's not worth getting from 50% visibility to 75% visibility. Right, And so one of the things I often tell people, if they're having a hard time being willing to practice this with others, is practice it with yourself and ask, how are you different than the you that existed 10 years ago? What's changed? And are you so sure that you won't change again? Hmm. Right? We are a constant evolution of change, whether we like it or not, whether we buck against it or not, whether we grip white knuckled to who we are right now. Fast forward in 10 years, you will have a different perspective on the person that sits in that chair today. Right? And so if you're in flux, and a work in progress and something that's continually in evolution. Mm. You can start to have the sympathy for others and the connection for others. And frankly, I mean, start with empathy before you even go anywhere else for what they might be going through too. And that their life is just as complex as yours and just as nuanced and perhaps at a different point on the journey, perhaps with a different end point in the destination or, or the next mile marker, it, you know, going left where you're going right, but they're evolving too. And so it's where are you meeting that person? And where are you and where are they? And how does that become the start of the dialogue? So one thing that I, I want to ask here is how, because again, I feel like the brain is called towards certainty of mm -hmm. like what is and, and who we are. And so to exist in a place where we are fundamentally open to mm -hmm. the perspectives and ideas, how do you navigate that area of navigating and having your own convictions, right? And beliefs and being firm in that while also being fully open to the perspectives of others at the same time. Right. It's, I mean, that's the, the, the paradox of self-work, right? Is that what you, what you believe is the, the, it's not an apex, it's the apex to date, right? It's like, it's, it's where you've made it so far. It's not, it's not the top of the mountain. Um, and hopefully that the, the, the journey continues, right? And that every, waking moment is a moment for observation and development and growth and perspective and all of those things. So I think that when we are practicing self-observation and we are witnessing ourselves in our own development and in our own growth, we are going to see ourselves in different ways. We're going to see the chinks in our armor. We're going to see the patterns that we've been repeating perhaps healthy, perhaps unhealthy. We're going to see that, that staunch belief that was so fundamental to the person you are. And I will never waver from it has been there for 10 years. So maybe it's actually a really solid thing. Hmm. Great. You've put in the work, the concrete's dried. It's become a thing now versus I can't believe I used to think that way. Right. We've all got those kinds of beliefs. Like I can't believe that was, that was what I thought this was all about that was who I thought I was, right? Those, those, those 
moments of of perspective are so valuable because sometimes when you see them what you see is what you were not what you are yeah one one thing that's coming up for me in this is like again it's you, you've talked about kind of just like the openness to the evolution of being as kind of like a fundamental value of your experience of like why you're here and like what to do with this thing that we <laughs> yeah. don't really know what's happening and it's kind of like if you can acknowledge that you only know what you know right now that almost as a value as opposed to just being right or sure that like openness and fundamental openness is like a central value and yeah. like anchoring into that as something that you can know is like I do know that I am changing constantly right and I want to be open to that process because ultimately you know obvious from your business and what you've been able to create and also you seem like a pretty happy guy so <laughs> but right yeah. yeah no absolutely I think I think that that openness and that willingness to continue to ask questions of yourself and to to want to learn more is such a great motivator mm. for me. I mean, it may not be for everybody. Some people may not want to ask those questions or maybe those questions are going to shine a light on a piece of work that they're not ready to do yet. Yeah. And that's okay too. Like I know I have a lot of people that I work with in the private practice who they know there's a thing mm. that they've got to do Yeah. and they're building up the will to do it, but they're not doing it yet. And that's okay. Sometimes yeah. you got to really like, you know, rev the engine a bit before you drop it into first gear. And that's what they're doing. Cause they know that's going to be a big piece of work and they need to be ready for it. Yeah. And so what's your personal edge in the world of empathy and how you are expressing it in the world individually, but also from a business standpoint, like you've been doing this for a long time, but you know, as you get into kind of like the deeper into the practice, you know, the growth can become more specific or exact. And so for you, knowing what you now know, what's your own edge or like where you're pushing yourself in the mm -hmm. application of this in your business and in your life? So I would personally, it is about expanding what has been a, uh, small group led approach to this, which has been myself and a couple thought partners as we've really cultivated this and built this out here to scale. There's a small group of us internally who are very clear on how we did this and how we got to this point. And in authoring Applied Empathy, one of the things that I wanted to do was put that out into the world and say, this is a way, right? This isn't the way, this is a way. And where we are at now and my, my edge is the willingness to see that as what it is, which is the, the first instantiation of this, but also to be willing to accept and understand and collaborate with other ways of this showing up in the world that are not of our own authorship and how are other people adopting it? And is it working? Is it not? Can we be helpful? Can we help? Can we, can we not revert back to our way and say this, no, 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 you're doing it wrong. Do it this way. Yeah. But can we be generous with our thought to help others find their way? Yeah. And what does that look like logistically in terms of how that's spreading in the world? Yeah. So we've got, we've got a team here. We've got 
a bunch of different folks. I mean, Sub Rosa is about 50 people, but um, there's a, a woman who li- just joined our team a couple weeks ago, and she is solely leading curriculum development Beautiful. and really blowing out all of the different ways in which we can respond to people's needs to deliver this work to their organization at various sizes and scales. We've got a five-person machine learning and AI team who are thinking about how does machine learning, data science, and, and artificial intelligence play a role in this, and what are the ethics of those things as it pertains to insight and you know how do you look at the application of of end of empathy which is the application of understanding and ensure that it is being done in an ethical manner and a sure. transparent manner i mean you think about what happened in the last election cycle with cambridge analytica yeah that was an unethical application of empathy They took deep understanding of people and their news patterns and their news sources, and they manipulated them in order to affect a behavior that changed an election. Right. So what would be an example of using it ethically? Uh, Well, it could be in order to improve a patient experience to increase the efficacy of a test. Yeah. It could be to help people understand uh, their financial health better or the way that you're being advertised to so that you can start to develop a mind of your own. I mean, like there are lots of ways that I think the most important thing is to not put our wishes into it, but instead to provide transparency with understanding. Right. So what, here's what we, here's what we know and understand. This is what other people know and understand about you too. Be mindful of that. Yeah. Know that you're, that, that is now, uh, 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 a kite and an anchor for people and they can pull you down with that or they can blow you, blow you up with it. I, I, I thought I was like, Oh, civic engagement would be a really fascinating. One. And then I was like, well, probably like half of our politicians would be interested. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. And well, that's the thing. It's like, it's gonna, it's gonna, what, like I always tell people, you know, you practice empathy. It's going to make things change. Yeah. Right. You're going like careers will change. Reputations will change. Personal development will change. Personal views will change. What's interesting, you brought it into the realm of of AI and machine learning. And I was even thinking about this in terms of people who are listening to this and, again, interested in going deeper. But it's uh, Jeff Wiener, the CEO of LinkedIn, just went on record of saying that, like, the the biggest hiring gap in America, the biggest skills gap is in the realm of communication and interpersonal dynamics mm-hmm. of just like one of the last frontiers that we'll be able to replicate will be that in the world of how are we capable of supporting other people in our businesses personally. Yeah. And so in terms of digging into this work and mastering it for yourself, or at least kind of improving, I think it's fundamental for so many people who are we, know, trying we, to exist. A hundred percent. We live in a world that was 10 years ago, mindfulness at work was not a phrase. No one was talking about that, right? Like it wasn't even a thing. Yeah. And now it is table stakes Hmm. and you go into any startup, you go into any large organization, anyone who's competing for cutting edge talent right now is finding ways to create a attention for and a support system for their employees well-being. And that might be through things like meditation or yoga at, at, at work, but it also might be just through training practices or through a flexible work schedule or through, you know, a whole host of different things, right? It has become a, a necessity in the world that we have to care for the people who work here because if we don't care for them, then they won't care for each other. Yeah, it's beautiful, man. And I, so I want to ask one final question and then we'll kind of, we'll round out, but as a new dad mm-hmm. with a two-year-old, um, I, I'm really fascinated about the 
introduction and systemization of like social emotional learning mm-hmm. in schools. And you talked about how we're not raised even culturally to talk about complex things, but even in the realm of, of just how we relate to one another and communicate. And this feels so fundamental and you've really painted that picture. So is there anything that's happening right now in our schools? You've talked about working, I think a lot in higher education, but so like, what is, what is the role of academic institutions in instilling these values into young people and what's happening that's working and and what would you like to see happen? Not my field of expertise, but speaking as a layperson, there are a couple things I would say. Um, I'd like to see parents care more than schools. (laughs) I'd like to see it start there and not let the school be in charge of providing that education, but it should start at the dinner table and it should start you know, in the, you know, in in the living room and that people should be comfortable learning how to have conversations and inquire and get to know your siblings or whatever it is, or your parents. Um, so I would hope it starts there. I hope schools reinforce it. Yeah. Right. Um, there's a lot of stuff happening in Scandinavia. I don't know all the details, but there are, there are in early childhood development, a lot of, uh, empathy courses that are now being really? taught. Yeah. There's an article that popped up in my newsfeed not that long ago about, um, how I want to say it was Denmark. I could be wrong. Um, how it's just made like empathy, a course for all first grade kids or something like that. Like it's, it's, it, there, there's a path into this that's yeah. cult that's being cultivated. Um, but I also think, you know, anyone who's going to have a interaction with the hearts and minds of kids should be mindful of, the value of curiosity and the, and the abundance of curiosity that they have. And so let that inquiry fly, but also keep it in check if it becomes something that's harmful, obviously, but we want to like, if a kid's curious about something, let them be curious about that. Let them ask questions. They're going to, they're going to go to a place that they might not have otherwise gone. When I was, I, I had a preschool education and a kindergarten education in a Montessori school and, uh, and, and did not have it after that. But my mom was a big believer that like at that age, like this is what openness, this, this little boy needs the most. And I, I don't know who I would be if had I not, to be honest. I was also in Montessori, but I got kicked out because I punched a kid named Kevin in the stomach. <laughs> so Kevin, if you're listening, I'm sorry. And I missed out, but I did get it for two years as well. There so, you go. See, so. so you, you said a question that I am absolutely going to steal just personally earlier that I love, which was how have you most changed over the past 10 years? Mm. And I, I love that frame. And um, I'm curious as someone who spends so much time in this arena could you almost like rapid fire? What are your favorite questions to ask people? And mm. I'll start first with, so the people that you are just meeting for the first time, what are, what do you find? What's like a pattern in terms of what you like to ask those people or understand about them? So <laughs> this is a funny thing because I also don't like, I'm an introvert and that surprises a lot of people, but I don't like, on, I don't like when there isn't permission granted to have deep inquiry yeah. because it makes people uncomfortable and it feels almost, uh, uh, an affront to their privacy at times. So this really depends on the relationship and how much of an invitation you have to ask these questions. Sometimes when I meet someone, I'll, you know, keep it 
at the altitude that they're comfortable at for a little while. And then we, you know, we slowly go down. It's like when you're scuba diving, you can't like just go straight to the bottom of the ocean. Right are, away. You, are you asking them where, what level I they're think, comfortable? I think there's, there's, there's a uh, nonverbal cues that you get yeah, from yeah. people. You know, there's, there's a, there's an uncomfortableness. There's a twist of the body. There's a cross of the legs. There's a turn sideways kind of behavior that, you, yeah, yeah. you know, like, okay, well, they're not super comfortable right now. We're going to go slow. Um, and sometimes it's like none of your business also, but, uh, for those people who I, I do have permission to go deeper with close yeah. friends, family, people who like were used to that kind of dialogue. I mean, some of the things that, that I want to know is like, what makes you happy? Hmm. Are you doing that enough? <laughs> um, what's the most common emotion you feel? That's interesting. Right. What do you know about your pain? Do you know like physical pain? Like where does it come from? Wow. Where? Where does it sit in your body? Is there something you do to fix it? How often do you have to do that? Hmm. Right. What do most people want from you? Wow. What do you recharge your batteries with? These are legitimately questions that I've never heard before. <laughs> <laughs> like these are amazing. Yeah. I mean this, but this is, this is, I think practice in inquiry. Yeah. That helps you get there. And so what about, for people on the professional end. So if you're walking into a strategy session with a company, mm -hmm. what are the first things that you want to know about people on the other end of the table? What does it feel like to work here? Hmm. Right. Cause you will get great answers and yeah. they will be vastly different depending on who you're asking and what their life is like in that organization. Um, what's the, what's the mission? What's the purpose of this place? Why does it exist? Yeah. Why do people choose to work here? Um, how long do people stay? Yeah. We work with a client right now that told us most people who work here won't work here for more than three years. We are a blue chip name on their resume. Hmm. We know that they know that they come, they work here for a few years, they get it on the resume and then they use that to negotiate a higher salary at a lesser firm. Hmm. <laughs> And like, and that's a tacit agreement that they have with everyone that works there. It's like, they know there will be a very small percentage of people that stay. Yeah. But most of us will come to get that notch on our belt and then be able to move on. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. One of the modalities, are you familiar with Gestalt communication yeah. therapy? And so it's like, uh, the modality that really transformed my life about four years ago. But one of my favorite principles within Gestalt communication is the idea of you don't ask questions. You seek to understand. Mm -hmm. And if you seek to understand questions are just part of the process, right? Yeah. And if that's like the anchor and I think what's so, what's so compelling about this and why I just love it is that again, it's like, it's just a, a concrete modality to help people understand others and themselves and their business and the world. And uh, it's really powerful work, man. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope that this uh, helps inspire a few people to bring empathy a little more to the fore. No, it definitely will, man. And so, where for people who are interested in this so the book is obviously called applied empathy and they've already got workshops and a bunch of other things but for you personally if where where should people go if they want to learn a little more about this work about you mm -hmm. everything that you're up to in the world um appliedempathy.com is a good place because it's got like a calendar for speaking engagements and workshops and things like that um my instagram is actually where i put most of my activity so if people want to like come to do a workshop or something like that you'll find me. it's at the michael ventura um that's it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and sub Rosa's URL is, uh, we are sub Rosa. And there you can see a little more case history and some of the examples of work we've done for folks in the past. 
And uh, so I, you know, I start up these episodes oftentimes by expressing a little bit of gratitude, but one piece of gratitude that I left out is that you are one of my favorite people to follow on social media <laughs> because he matches this very interesting, innovative, like full of depth content. And then like every now and again, just absolutely absurd meme thrown <laughs> into the mix, which is like, I love, I love people who can kind of manage depth and levity at the same time. Thank you. And I love that you're towing that line, but uh, I'm really just a huge fan of this work and you brother. So thank you so much. Check him out. We'll have all this stuff broken down in the show notes, but uh, really loved it. So we'll see you next time. Adios. Thank you.